Hi, my name is Yasmin Terehi, and this is Gateways to Awakening, where we host one-on-one conversations with leading experts in wellness, well-being, personal development, and spirituality. Today's episode is with Ethan Cross. Ethan is one of the world's leading experts on controlling the conscious mind, and he's an award-winning professor at the University of Michigan's top-ranked psychology department and its Ross School of Business, and he's also the director of the Emotion and Self-Control Laboratory. Ethan has participated in policy discussions at the White House. He's also been interviewed about some of his research on CBS Evening News, Good Morning America, Anderson Cooper, and NPR's Morning Edition. And his research has also been featured in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and more. So I'm so excited to welcome Ethan to the show today. I actually heard about him through a colleague of mine who had heard about his show, or or sorry, had heard about uh, an episode that he did on another podcast, which I listened to. So um, thank you so much for joining us, Ethan. Thanks for having me. I've been looking forward to this conversation. Likewise, likewise. And I think it's so relevant and important, especially today, because I believe that this pandemic has left us all in a very, I think, raw and vulnerable space. (laughs) Um, So just to kick it off, Ethan, can you tell us, like, what does it actually mean to have an inner critic? Well, to understand what an inner critic is, we have to step back and first talk about what it means to have an inner voice. And I like to define that at the outset because that term is used in a lot of different ways, depending on who you talk to. When scientists use that term, what we mean is we're talking about our ability to silently use language to reflect on our lives. And the ability to to do that, um, that's a tool that we possess that I like to think of. it's, It's kind of like a Swiss army knife of the human mind that lets us do lots of different things, everything from keeping a a nugget of verbal information active in your head. So if you go to the grocery store and you think to yourself, Hey, what do I have to, what do I have to buy? And then you go down the list in your head, yogurt, bread, milk, that's your inner voice. We also use our inner voice to plan and simulate future activities. Like before you go on an interview or a date, you might think to yourself what you're going to say. Uh, And we also use our inner voice to coach ourselves along. Uh, So when I'm exercising, for example, I often think to myself, come on, you could do it. Three more reps, one, two, three, and I count down. So your inner voice lets you do all of those things. But as many listeners will no doubt be familiar, sometimes when we experience adversity, what we do is we, we turn our attention inward to tap into this tool, but we don't get encouraging advice from that inner voice. And instead we start hearing our inner critic. So we turn our attention inward to come up with a solution to our problems, but we end up worrying and ruminating and, and catastrophizing instead. That's the dark side of our inner voice. And it's what I call chatter. And I think it's one of the big problems we face as a culture. Yeah, absolutely. And I think a lot of people probably don't even know when their inner critic is starting, right? And when their inner voice, like the encouragement piece is ending, because it's sometimes a lot of people are just so unconscious of of it even occurring. So I'm curious, you know, how do, how do you guide people to deal with their inner critic? You know, let's say, you know, you have something come up that is a difficult situation and 
you say, you know, your inner critic says something like, I'm not good enough or I don't deserve this. Um, how, how would you guide people through this process? Well, I think step one is having a vocabulary um, that allows us to identify what is happening in our minds. As you said, a lot of us don't, we don't get a playbook growing up. We are not taught, hey, this is what your inner voice is. Here's the positive side of it. Here's the negative. And I think just knowing that your inner voice can have these manifestations, that's really potentially powerful because once we have a way of labeling and describing the experience we're going through, we can then choose to take action to manage that situation. So step one is understanding what chatter is. Once you understand what it is, most people are going to be motivated to, I think, to reduce that state because it's so terribly uncomfortable. It doesn't feel good to be stuck in a negative thought loop, to be stuck experiencing intense anxiety or or sadness or anger. And um, that's where the different tools, the science-based tools that I talk about in my book come, come into play. So what we know is that there's no single one-size-fits-all approach to reducing your chatter, to wrestling with that inner critic. Instead, what we know is we've evolved to possess lots and lots and lots of different tools that we can use to, to manage our chatter. Um, sometimes it requires using not just one tool, but but several tools. And different types of tools work for different people in different situations. Uh, so one of the things I try to do in my book is lay out what the toolbox is. What are the different things you can do to manage your chatter? To then leave it up to the reader to figure out, hey, these are the tools that work best for me, given my unique situation in life. And so can we double click and maybe go through an example of a tool that has worked for someone that you've worked with? Um, you feel free to pick any example. And of course, we'll keep it anonymous if you want to make up a name. <laughs> well, I'll just, uh, how about I just use it, tools that work for me? Um, this way we don't have to be, we don't have to have any anonymity. So I'll, 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 why don't I tell you about uh, a couple of my favorites? Um, there are close to 30 that are out there. Um, I'll just tell you about a handful. One of the things we know about chatter is that when we experience it, we get zoomed in very narrowly on our problems. All we could think about is the thing that we're experiencing chatter about. We're stuck in this tunnel vision. And what we've learned is that when that happens, it can be really helpful to be able to step back or zoom out to look at the bigger picture, to get what we call in technical terms, psychological distance from our experience. And turns out there are lots of different distancing tools that are out there. One of my favorite tools and the one that I is my first line of defense when I'm experiencing chatter is something that we call distanced self-talk. And what it involves doing is trying to coach yourself through a situation like you would give advice to another person and actually using the structure of language to help you do that. What I mean is use your own name or the second person pronoun you to silently coach yourself through a problem. We typically use names when we think about or refer to other people, not when we think about ourselves. And so what we've learned through lots of experiments is that when a person uses their own name to coach themselves through a problem, 
all right, Ethan, here's how you're going to manage the situation. What that essentially does is it turns us, it, it, it switches our perspective. It gets us to start giving ourselves advice, like we would give advice to a close friend. And that's potentially really useful because one of the things we know about people is we are much, much better at giving advice to others than we are taking our own advice. It's really amazing when we do um, experiments in our lab, we often have people think about their their deepest worries and, and ruminations. And sometimes participants don't want to tell us what they've thought about. It's it, they're, they're embarrassed to share the thoughts that are streaming through their own heads. They're saying things to themselves that they would never dream about saying to their best friend. And so what distant self-talk does is it helps, it helps us change the way we relate to ourselves, which can be useful. So Ethan, can we double click on that? And like, actually let's maybe use you as an example. So something that you're dealing with and you would tell yourself like, Ethan, you like, you would kind of address yourself from maybe a, a different point POV, right? Can, can you like explain kind of explicitly uh, share how that would play out in the dialogue. Yeah, I would coach myself through the situation using my my own name. All right, Ethan, here's how you're going to manage the situation. You've been through this before. You've succeeded in the past. It's going to be fine. And in the worst case scenario, even if you experience some negativity, it'll be over in an hour and then you'll move on to something else. So get to it. So what I'm doing there is I'm, I'm I'm basically giving myself advice. I'm coaching myself through the situation like I would give advice to someone else. That's very different from being stuck in a, a first-person narrative where I'm thinking, oh, my God, how am I going to manage this situation? I can't do it. Um, I'm not going to be able to perform. Instead of being in this threat mode where I feel like I'm not capable of managing the situation, I'm instead transitioning into giving myself feedback to suggest that I can manage this situation. Wow. It's so fascinating. So why, why is that so effective? Like, what have you found about this scenario? I mean, cause it like kind of, does it, is it because it depersonalizes it? Um, you know, what exactly are the mechanics from an emotional level, from like a psychological uh, level? Like how does, how does that play out? Well, it's pulling you back from the situation. So it's giving you psychological distance, which is allowing you to think more objectively about the situation. And typically when we zoom out, we often find that there are solutions to the problems that we're managing. And it's also getting you to relate to yourself from a a different kind of perspective, thrusting you into that coaching mode. If you think about why is it that we are so adept at giving advice to other people, whereas we flounder to do to do so with ourselves? One of the, the, the reasons for that is when a friend comes to us with a problem that they're experiencing chatter about and asks us for our advice, the problem is not happening to us. We don't have that emotional connection, which can often make it much harder to think objectively. And so what this linguistic shift is doing, what using your own name to coach yourself through a problem is doing, is it's giving you that mental space, putting you in that position to be more objective as you try to work through your experience. And does this work for any type of grievance? Um, Like, let's say, you know, there's smaller grievances um, that happen maybe during the day. And then what about kind of these larger grievances? Like, 
you know, the dissolution of a marriage or the death of a partner? I mean, have you studied the the kind of range of grievances and is it just as effective? Well, you know, it, it, we have not studied, uh, and I use the the we, the royal we there, myself and, and other investigators, um, every kind of grievance that a person is capable of experience surely have not been been focused on in the lab. Now, that said, we have looked at we have looked at how this strategy works for um, experiences that range in their intensity from the minor to the more significant. And what we find across studies is that either the the strategy works as well for the more intense stressors as the less intense stressors. Or in some cases, we find that it actually is more effective for the more significant stressors. And our interpretation there is that when it comes to run-of-the-mill things that aren't that potent, there's not a whole lot of negative emotion to cloud one's thinking. And so the more negative emotion we're experiencing, the more room there is for these strategies to have their benefits. It's not unlike taking Tylenol to... Uh, get your fever down. So if you are running a 98.8 fever and you take take some Tylenol, it may nudge your temperature down a few tenths of a point, but it's not going to it's not going to drop it um, much lower. Whereas if you have a really high fever, there's much more room for the Tylenol to have its its effects. So. Um, so that's what we see happening with this strategy across a couple of different papers. Now, I do want to give a caveat that we have not looked at how this strategy works with people who are suffering from clinical forms of psychopathology or distress. And that remains an open question, whether these benefits generalize to those groups. But Yasmin, I want to emphasize that this is one strategy um, in a much, much larger toolbox of, let's say, 30-something. So while this is my go-to strategy, the first thing I do, uh, in part because it's so easy to do, and we've shown in research that it, it is very easy to activate the strategy, I would encourage listeners to try it on their own next time you're struggling with something rather than think to yourself, oh my God, what should I do? Just plug in your own name and think, what should blank if it's me, what should Ethan do? Give it a shot. But there are many other things we do so um, that people can do. And so let me let me transition to another strategy. Another easy distancing strategy to use is something that we call mental time travel, or in technical terms, temporal distancing. What this strategy involves is thinking about how you're going to feel about something that's bothering you sometime down the road in the future. When we're experiencing chatter, we get zoomed in on the awfulness of whatever it is we're currently experiencing. Oh my God, how am I going to deal with this event that I have coming up or this feedback that I just got? And what temporal distancing involves is asking a person to think, hey, how are you going to think about this, this, this challenge you're facing a week from now, a month from now, a year from now? What engaging in that mental time travel does for us is it makes us realize that hey, as awful as what I'm experiencing right now is, it's temporary. It'll eventually fade because most of our emotional experiences do fade with time. And what that does for people is it, is it, it highlights the instability of our emotional experience, which 
when it comes to negative events, gives us hope that we're going to feel better. And so that's another way you could try to manage your chatter. That's another thing that I'll do. Um, I'll not just coach myself through a situation using my own name, but also think, hey, how am I going to feel about this? Uh, you know, a week from now, a month from now. So that's another kind of distancing tool. Uh, that's probably the second thing I do. Now, the third thing I'll do is I'll call up one of my chatter advisors. Uh, what is a chatter advisor? It's someone in my social network who is particularly adept at helping me reason through and work through a negative experience that I'm dealing with. These are not trained clinicians or, or, or coaches or anything of that sort. They are people who do for me two things. Number one, they take the time to listen and hear what I'm going through. So they let me express my emotions a little bit. But importantly, that's not all they do. They're not just getting me to vent about what I'm going through. They instead, they listen a little bit. And then at the appropriate time in the conversation, they start trying to help broaden my perspective. They start trying to point out different ways that I might think about this experience or, or, or share with me how they've... Uh, they've dealt with these kinds of experiences. And the ability to do those two things, to both let me express my emotions a little bit, but then helping me zoom out to broaden my perspective, that makes them an incredible resource. And not everyone that I'm close to is skilled at helping me do that. There are three or four people in my life who I can count on to uh, give me good chatter support when it comes to personal issues, maybe four or five maybe six even, uh, when it comes to professional issues, you know, work-related issues that I'm dealing with. And so that's another, another element in my toolbox that I, that I rely on when I'm having some kind of chatter experience. Yeah. And I would love to hear the rest of the tools because, uh, these two are incredible and amazing. And, um, I already feel so inspired to take action using them, uh, and just, thinking about how I can use them in my own life. But yeah, Ethan, if you would like to continue, I, I would be really happy to hear more about some of the other tools that have worked for you uh, besides those three. And I think it's funny when, as you were talking about the chatter advisor piece, I was sort of thinking there's so many people that would get really reactive when you bring something to the table that is um, kind of a conflict in your life. And so trying to find those people is also really interesting. Um, and I'm sure some people would have to maybe have an intergenerational exploration of finding the, the right people who can maybe hold space for, for certain chatter. But yeah, if you would like to continue, Ethan, I, I would be really happy to hear more tools um, if you'd like. Um, well, you're absolutely right. You have to be careful who you choose. I, I often joke, but I'm being serious, that there are many people in my life that I'm very close to DNA determines it. What I mean by that is I'm related to them. I don't talk to them about my chatter because the thought that they have is that the way that they can help me is to get me to just express my emotions. And we know from decades of research that just venting your emotions doesn't help people feel better. It, it makes them feel close and connected to the person they're talking to. It increases friendship bonds. But in terms of providing them with um, a way of managing their chatter, venting alone doesn't do the trick. It really is this combination of both expressing emotion 
and zooming out to get that big picture advice. And um, there are only a handful of people who can help me do that. And so I'm very grateful for, to them. So switching gears, uh, let me take about two more strategies that really do constitute the end of my, my go-to toolbox. Uh, one of the other things that I do is very out of character for me. So I like to think of myself as someone who has, who's an organized thinker, but in terms of my external life, I'm not particularly organized. Uh, if you were to come into my house on, uh, you know, any, any chatter free day of the week, you'd likely see a trail of clothing from the bathroom to my closet. And if you came into my office at home, there'd be piles of books and papers often to my wife's dismay. But when I'm experiencing chatter, I do something that's out of character for me. I put everything away, very nice and neat. I tidy up, I organize. When I'm done putting the clothing away in the bedroom, I go down to the kitchen and I wash the dishes and I scrub the, scrub the counters. What I'm doing there is I'm trying to compensate for the lack of control that I feel when I'm experiencing chatter by exerting control around me. And lots of people do this when they're, they're dealing with the stress and it turns out it could be beneficial. So chatter is often, often experienced as you don't feel like you're in control, right? Your thoughts, your emotions, they're, they're taking charge of you and you can compensate for this experience by, by tidying up and organizing. So that's another thing I can do. And importantly, Knowing about how this works scientifically, what that allows me to do is to be proactive about, about using this tool in my life. I don't have to wait to experience chatter and then just, huh, something inside of me is, 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 is propelling me to organize and, oh, I feel better now. The moment I, I, I detect that chatter brewing, I'll start putting things away and that can be beneficial. So that's another tool I use. The last tool that that is my first line of defense is uh, going for a walk in, in a green space outside. So walking around my neighborhood or going for a walk in the park. We know that enhancing your exposure to green spaces can be helpful in two ways. Number one, it can provide us with an opportunity to restore our attention. So when we're experiencing chatter, our attention is consumed by our worries and ruminations. What happens when you go for a walk in a green space is your, your attention gently drifts away from your chatter onto the interesting things that surround you, the flowers, the bushes, the trees. And when your attention drifts away, it, it gives you an opportunity to restore those focused resources that you had been devoting towards working through your chatter. When you're worried or, or ruminating about something, you're really focusing hard on trying to solve that problem. You're not making much progress, but you're focusing really hard. When you go for a walk in nature, your attention drifts, but in a very soft way. You're not carefully scrutinizing the geometrical structure of the, of the tree leaves around you, or at least I'm not. I don't think most people are. I'm just taking it in. And taking it in in that manner can be really restorative. So that's one way that nature can help us. The other way it can is by providing us with opportunities to experience the emotion of awe. Awe is an emotion we experience when we're in the presence of something vast and indescribable, something that you just can't contemplate how this came to be. And nature is filled with those awe triggers. For example, an amazing sunset or, or looking at the 
at least where I am right now, the, the autumn leaves, um, you know, looking at the color of leaves can be quite beautiful and they continue to change throughout the year. And when you experience awe, what ends up happening is we experience something called a shrinking of the self. When you are contemplating something vast and indescribable, you feel smaller in comparison. And when you feel smaller, so too does your chatter. So I will, I'll go for a, a stroll around the neighborhood to try to restore my attention and, and experience some awe as another way of hoping to manage my chatter. Mm, powerful, powerful. Thank you so much. Those are incredibly helpful. And I'm sure a lot of people will have a, a huge shift, even just practicing one of them. So uh, to have all of them feels like such a gift. So thank you, Ethan. And how did you come up with these concepts? Like, I, you know that you are uh, the director of the Emotion Self-Control Lab. Um, did you discover this through your work? Uh, and then can you just kind of walk us through the process and how you were able to come up with some of these concepts? Sure. So a lot of the work that we do in the lab uh, and that we've been doing for uh, close to 20 years now, when I started um, in this business in graduate school is in trying to figure out when people are struggling with problems, how can we get them to work through those experiences effectively rather than succumb to chatter? Uh, but in terms of the tools that I talked to you about today and, and the tools that are written about in my book, those are go well beyond what we've done in my lab alone. When I was researching the book, I was really trying to look at what have we learned um, over the past 20 or 30 years with respect to what science-based tools are out there to managing our inner voice. And um, and so, so the book is really a, uh, a grand tour of scientific insights surrounding this issue. That, that go beyond what, what we do idiosyncratically here at the University of Michigan. And uh, what about the um, self-control piece? Um, what have you learned about self-control? Well, I, I like to, you know, it's funny. A lot of people, when they hear the term self-control, they instantly think about how do you not um, succumb to temptation, like, uh, you know, eating the treat after, after bedtime. Or, or consuming drugs. And that certainly is a form of self-control. But I like to use a broader, I, I, a broader definition of self-control. I think self-control captures everything we've been talking about during this conversation. When you're trying to manage your chatter, your chatter is part of you. It's part of the self. So Controlling that chatter is, to me, a form of self-control. Controlling your emotions is a form of controlling yourself because the emotions are part of who we are. So I define self-control very, very broadly as our ability to align our thoughts, feelings, and behaviors with our goals. And so if you have the goal of reigning in an emotional response, if you have a goal of muffling your chatter, that to me is self-control. Oh, fascinating. Okay. Um, and how long does it take people to kind of learn that self-control? Like, is it uh, something that you can teach people? Um, how does that timeline work? 
Uh, absolutely. I think you can definitely teach people about how to control themselves, their emotions, feelings, and behaviors effectively. Some of the tools that are out there for doing this are really easy to implement. Others take more effort. And it's usually a combination of both the effortful and less effortful tools that, that help folks. But, um, you know, some of the things that I talk about in Chatter are just, they're easy to implement and you see benefits right away. Others take longer. It really depends on the person and the situation. There is tremendous variability in terms of what combinations of tools work best for different people. I actually think that this is the key challenge um, that we face both as a science and uh, as a society. Where I think we are right now is this. Science has revealed many different tools that exist to help us manage our emotional lives. I can tell you how those individual tools work mechanistically, why they work and so forth. What I can't tell you is why one person should use these three tools to deal with this situation, but another person should use these six tools to deal with that situation they're dealing with. The science isn't yet at the point where we can make those kinds of prescriptions about combinations of tools and which combinations work best for different people. That's the kinds of questions that we are now trying to answer in the lab, and it is a very exciting domain of inquiry that we are embarking on in trying to do so. But while we, while we try to answer those questions, which can often take some time, I think there's an opportunity for listeners to do some self-experimentation, to try, to try out these different tools and figure out for themselves, hey, which are the ones that work best for me and which ones don't? If a tool isn't serving you well, don't use it. If it is, keep using it. And then maybe layer on another tool. That's the, the challenge I think we face right now. And it's one that I hope, I hope listeners avail themselves of uh, after they hear this conversation or read the book. How long does it often take for a tool to have a dramatic um, kind of shift? Or maybe the better question is, do you ever get pushed back into your uh, kind of critic um, and kind of panic mode, even with this knowledge? Or have, are you in a space where you ingrained it so deeply in your response to conflict that it's just almost like second nature for you? Uh, do I experience chatter times? Absolutely. There's still, you know, times where I get a little caught up with things. Um, knowing about the science has absolutely got me much better at managing chatter. Uh, I'm really good at detecting when it's about to begin. And the moment I detected brewing, I, I immediately start using these tools. And in many cases, they, they nip that reaction in the bud before it escalates. There are some times where some of the tools that have been working don't work for a particular situation. And when that happens, I switch to another tool. But it is very, very rare that I get stuck for a prolonged period of time overwhelmed by the chatter. So uh, they, they do they do work. Uh, I do not think it is possible to rid one's life completely of, of chatter. I think that is very, very unlikely. Uh, I don't think that's the goal. I think the goal should be to shorten the amount of space, amount of time you spend 
in that chatter. And if you can do that, I think the benefits that you derive will be quite, um, quite powerful. So Ethan, you mentioned earlier that uh, this doesn't usually kind of apply to, or maybe there hasn't been research on whether it applies to folks who have, I guess, severe, you know, cognitive disorders, but what about people who have like mild depression? Because I think that that seems to be like such a big ailment of our time, um, especially in this like pandemic world, this never, it seems like a never ending pandemic or, but, but yeah, how do you, um, do you, do you have a prescription for people that are mildly depressed or are some cognitive disorders just not applicable? No, I, well, you know, so some of these tools um, have certainly been studied in the context of not just mild depression, but clinical depression and clinical forms of anxiety and intense anger. And, and there have been, you know, some of these studies have been, some of these tools have been shown to generalize and be useful for those populations. It's hard to make any sweeping, to draw any sweeping conclusions because these 30-something tools, let's say, they have not been systematically looked at across different disorders and levels. Um, you know, I was what I was trying to do in the book was really pull together lots of different strands from many different labs. You know, what, what have we learned? But, um, but I think there is a lot of evidence suggesting that many of these tools can be effective for people who are struggling with moderate forms of anxiety or depression, which is to say many of us at certain points in our life, like when you say moderate depression or moderate anxiety, what I take that to mean is not a clinical manifestation, but rather succumbing to those emotional states for, you know, a, you know like, like many of us do periodically. And my, my advice there is, you know, try out some of the tools and if they help you keep using them and if they don't, don't use them. Mm, got it. Okay. And uh, what about, you know, some people, I think there's a lot of schools of thought that talk about how turning inwards to kind of understand our feelings is beneficial while other people sort of fall apart when they engage in the kind of same inquiry and same behavior. Uh, why is that? Why for some people is that so scary and for others um, not? Well, um, that gets to the really crux of of the book and of the research that we've been trying to do in this space. And one of the reasons why we often find introspection harmful and why it often backfires is because we get we zoom in so narrowly on the problem and and really lose perspective. And that's one of the reasons why some of the distancing tools that I talk about can be helpful. They zoom us out. They allow us to focus on that bigger picture in ways that can be, can be helpful. Now, it does make sense that you would reflexively zoom in on a problem. When, when you're dealing with it, you want to focus on the issue at hand. But if we get stuck in that zoomed out state, that's when introspection can cease to be useful. Ah, oh, got it. Got it. So if you get stuck in the zoomed in space, then yeah, got it. Okay. Um, what about um, folks who might have like louder, you know, critical voices or, or inner critics than others? Have you noticed that? Like, and is that also just kind of a reflection of their own personality or culture? Um, you know, I, I, 
louder inner voices or inner critics. Um, so if, if by that you mean they're more prone to chatter, um, we see chatter playing out across different cultures. So that's not really a big source of variability. Where cultures differ are in terms of what the source of the chatter is. So a person living in the United States may be prone to experiencing chatter over issues that a person living in Japan, for example, might not, and it might be different there. But um, but in terms of the overall rate or frequency with which people experience chatter, I'm not aware of cross-cultural research that has that has documented that. I'd love to learn a little bit more about why you've dedicated your time and your life to this world and this space. Can you talk to us about what attracted you to this work and, and about your own experience? Sure. Uh, you know, growing up, I, um, my dad would talk to me a lot about the benefits of introspection and, and encourage me every time I experience a problem to, turn my attention inward, tap into my inner voice and find a solution. And by and large, that strategy worked really well for me growing up. If I experienced some form of adversity, I do exactly what he said, come up with a solution and move on. I never really got stuck. And then I got to college, took my first psychology class and discovered that a lot of people do exactly what my dad told me to do and benefit as a result. But sometimes people often don't benefit and they start experiencing rumination and anxiety, what I call chatter. And so that ended up becoming a, a, a really interesting puzzle for me. Why is it that at times we turn our attention inward and find solutions to our problems, but at other times doing the exact same thing leads us astray. And of course that has happened to me at times too. And so I just became really, really interested in that question and in that puzzle. I, I, I thought about it as a type of puzzle of human nature, and it motivated me to go to graduate school to learn how to use the tools of science to try to answer that question. And that's what I've been busy doing ever since. So, um, yeah, fascinating. Love, love that. And what about in terms of the last, like, let's say 10 years um, since you've been you know, kind of in this space and more. Have you noticed a shift in people's emotional world? Uh, like, has there been any kind of trend that you've seen about any of the work that you're doing? And I think especially so since the pandemic started. I mean, how has that played out with some of your research? Well, we're living through what I've called the chatter event of the last hundred years in the form of this pandemic, because what the pandemic has done is presented us with a situation that it, we're not certain about what's going to happen next. And it's also a situation in which we have not really had a whole lot of control over what happens and experiencing uncertainty and a lack of control. Those are those are the building blocks that those are the, that, you know, those constitute the jet fuel that propels chatter forward. And we see that manifesting in um, skyrocketing rates of anxiety and depression. Uh, last I checked, they were up 30% uh, here in the States compared to before the pandemic. So I think on the one hand, over the past year and a half, there has been 
a really crucial need for people to have more insight into what's happening in their emotional lives. And um, there's been, I think, a real opportunity to give folks tools to help them manage it. What we've also experienced concurrently with, with COVID and even starting a little bit before is a movement to recognize the importance that our emotional lives play in our lives and the idea that the ability to manage those emotions is an essential tool that is not something we can take for granted, but that is often the difference between being successful and not. So there's been a rise of interest in, in concepts like mental fitness and, um, and a push to make it acceptable to talk about the kinds of issues we've been spending this, this conversation chatting about, um, talking about that in work, at school, and at home, whereas not too long ago talking about those private experiences was considered somewhat taboo and a sign of weakness. So I think we're, we're, we're pushing forward in a pretty positive way. It would be nice if we could get rid of the um, pandemic, but... Um, but even if we can't, we definitely know that there are tools to help people manage their chatter around it effectively. Right, right. And even just the example of zooming out of this time we're in and just knowing that at some place there will be, um, you know, some sense of maybe balance, I hope, uh, in this world and in all of our worlds. And uh, Ethan, you know, what about... Uh, and I'm not sure if you have studied this, but I'd love to know what you think is the future of humanity and also like how technology has shifted our emotional world. And because I think, I mean, there's so much data out there and there's a ton of now documentaries um, that have proven that our you know, technology and our the social media and being on smartphones and having this constant comparison, um, you know, thing happening has really just created a lot of damage. I mean, yes, there's been opportunity, but there's been also a lot of damage and fallout in the human psyche, I think collectively and especially in the West. What do you think has surprised you the most on this journey? That's a great question. Um, one of the, the most interesting discoveries I've had on this journey is um, actually has to do with how to get help from other people when it comes to chatter. This, you know, there's been research that goes back quite a while, which has shown that venting doesn't help people get better when it comes to chatter. Yet so many people uh, continue to do that and believe that venting is a solution. So that's been really, really um, interesting to, to see that an intuition that a lot of people have doesn't actually cash out, so to speak, when you look at some of the science. Um, that's been one of the most interesting observations I've had. Hmm. And uh, so we're wrapping up soon, but I also wanted to know what books or resources have inspired you on this path? And also, if you could share the title of your book with the audience. Sure. One of the um, one of the books that's inspired me the most is Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning, story of a Holocaust survivor who loses everything before the war and is then put in a, a concentration camp 
has his family slaughtered, but manages to persevere by changing the way he thinks about his circumstances. And I was reading that book in college, it was very powerful for highlighting the potential of the human mind to help us weather adversity if we could figure out how to harness its potential. And uh, it's a book I reread almost every year. I assign it to all the students in the seminars I teach. So that that really played a foundational role in my in my intellectual development in this space. And I'm grateful for it. The name of my book is Chatter, The Voice in Our Head, Why It Matters and How to Harness It. Excellent. And it's on uh, Amazon, correct? Yeah, you could find the book on Amazon and in most other places that books are sold. That's great. And what's next for you and at the lab? What are you guys kind of working on next? We're doing a lot of work to try to figure out how different combinations of tools work for different people to help them manage adversity uh, in response to different kinds of events. And this question of how different kinds of tools work together, I think is one of the really big ones we face. So we're trying really hard to solve that. And we're also doing research in which we teach high school kids about these strategies and are then going to look to see what implication does learning about the science concerning how to manage the human mind, does that actually give these high school kids an advantage uh, over time in terms of their ability to achieve, to feel well, and to maintain good relationships. And so that's a big project we're getting ready to launch in a couple of months. Amazing. And what do you want to tell our audience, our listeners about their mental health, their wellness, well-being? What's sort of your main takeaway call to action if you could tell folks something? Well, my main call to action is, is twofold. If you find yourself experiencing chatter at times and are motivated to manage it, try using some of the different tools I talk about in my book. Um, if a tool works for you, keep using it. If not, use something else, but really try to find the combination of tools that work best for you. And number two, help others in your life do the same. I think there's a responsibility we all have to share this information uh, with others. And so if you could share share what you've learned, I think that would be doing a good thing for society. Mm. Yes. Amen. Uh, so are there any resources that you can point folks to in order to learn more about you and your work? Where can people follow you? They can, if, if, if folks want to learn more about the book, my research, they can go to my website, www.ethancross with a K, K-R-O-S-S.com. And there's lots of information on that site. Uh, about everything we've talked about today. And they could find me on social media as well, on Twitter, Instagram, or LinkedIn. Amazing. And Ethan, so is there any question that I have not asked that you would have liked me to ask uh, just to share maybe something that I may have missed that's important for you to, to share with our audience? I don't think so. I think we covered everything. Okay. Okay, great. <laughs> Amazing. Thank you so much for your time, Ethan. This has been so delightful and uh, I'm excited to try out these tools in my own life. I think a lot of people in the audience will as well and we'll head over to uh, Amazon, get your book Chatter. So thank you so much, Ethan. Thanks for having me, Yasmin. Good luck with everything and thank you for doing what you do. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. And for our audience, thanks for joining and for listening. In this episode, we learned about 
The Inner Critic uh, with Ethan Cross, and you can tune in to Gateways to Awakening, where we host one-on-one conversations with leading experts in wellness, well-being, personal development, and spirituality. Thanks again.